Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Women in the Word at Uni podcast. My name's Rachel and in this podcast we look at some of what God teaches us in the Bible. Today we're starting a brand new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, if you've never read Ecclesiastes, it is a great book, one of the 39 found in the Old Testament, and that's the part of the Bible which focuses on the period of history before Jesus lived on earth. The Old Testament includes laws and rules, historical narratives, poetic writings and prophecies. And then fairly well in the middle of these sit the books which we call the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Job. These books, in contrast to the rest, provide more of a comment on what it looks like to live a wise life, how to live life well. I'm really excited about spending the next few episodes of the podcast with you seeking to understand what Ecclesiastes tells us about how we can live life well under God. So with all that background in mind, let's begin. First of all, I want to ask you a question. What does a good day look like for you? If you could spend a day in any way you choose, what would you do? I had a really good day on the Saturday before last. It was my husband's birthday recently, so we took out two children who are four and almost two, and we visited a cute little cafe in the suburb of Wilston in Brisbane for morning tea. Now this cafe was built in an old Queenslander style house with a great backyard area for the kids to run around in while we sipped our chai tea and shared some fruit toast spread with gourmet cultured Australian butter and strawberry mango jam. It was lovely. It was a delightful way to spend the morning. In fact, if you were to ask me my ideal way of spending a day, it would be doing pretty much this exact sort of thing. So what does your ideal day look like? What makes a day a really good day for you? Now, let's broaden the question. Let's think big picture. As you look ahead to your life beyond uni, what do you envisage? What in your mind's eye would constitute a really good life? What's your goal for life? What do you want to achieve? What do you want your life to look like? You may have some pretty firm ideas already. You may have some clear goals and aspirations, or you may not. Either way, the book of Ecclesiastes has something to say to you. The writer of Ecclesiastes has put a lot of thought into what makes a life good, about what gives life purpose, and he makes some points which I think can help us to think about what will give our lives a good purpose too. In the passage that we're looking at today, we'll see that he does that by examining the cycles of life, by undergoing a search for meaning, and by looking at how the end of life affects the way we live now. And we'll see that the end shapes the way we define good and enjoyment in this life. Now let's begin by reading some of what he had to say. It would be terrific if you could have a Bible open in front of you, whether that be a hard copy or a digital version. Today we're covering the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes, but we're just going to read Ecclesiastes 1 verses 1 to 11 to begin with. I'm reading from the New International Version. I encourage you to read along with me so you can keep looking back at the text as we talk about it shortly. Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. 
The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has its enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. What do you think of Ecclesiastes so far? At this point, I really wouldn't blame you if you were wondering why we've come to Ecclesiastes, especially with the promise that it's going to help us think through our aspirations and goals for life. Bear with me, we'll get there. But right now, it is at a pretty depressing point. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless in verse 2. Then we close in verse 11 with, No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. The voice whose words are recorded for us here, who we'll be referring to as the teacher, seems to be reaching the conclusion that there is no point to life, that there is no meaning, and that we won't even be remembered by the people born after us. Not exactly a cheery thought, is it? So before we go any further at all, we need to understand what the teacher is saying when we see the word meaningless, because it's a little different to what we immediately might interpret it to be. Typically, when we use the word meaningless, we mean something like pointless, useless, futile, gives us the sense of why bother? Really not what you might expect to see when we're talking about your life and aspirations beyond uni. But the Hebrew word from which our Bibles are translated here expresses the sense of vapour. In other words, something that is like a mist, thin, fleeting, passing away, quickly vanishing. So rather than saying that our lives are pointless, the teacher is helping us to see their transitory nature. And that's what he illustrates in verses 3 to 11 as he studies the cycles of life. Take a look at verses 5 to 7 with me. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. As we see in the natural world around us, there is a certain repetitiveness to life. Even in nature, life is fleeting. It's quickly passing because each moment is giving way to the next one. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you know that as much as you might enjoy the sunshine during the day, the sun will set and make it easier for you to sleep tonight? Yet the sun will rise again in the morning to help you see your way, and so on and so forth. Wouldn't it be somewhat distressing and confusing if the sun just didn't rise one day? Sure, we might appreciate a sleep in, but would you really be glad of a night dark sky at 12 midday? Or a bright, sunshiny moment at 12 midnight? Throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a sense of time, not just that it is passing, but of orderly and appropriate timing of events. If we read chapter 3, we find a series of statements about life, beginning in verse 1 to 2 with, There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. Time passes, and with it do the things we do and experience in this life. They are quickly passing, just as God has designed them to be. Yet we can't escape a negative note in our chapter 1 passage, can we? Verse 3, what do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? 
In verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Then in verses 11, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. As much as he might not have meant pointlessness by the word we translate as meaningless, the teacher certainly does seem to express a frustration, a weariness with life, a sense of futility. And this leads him to his next quest. He studies life in a bid to discover meaning. Let's read chapter 1 verses 12 to 14. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. In chapter 1 verses 12 to chapter 2 verse 26, we find the teacher on a quest, a search for meaning. He seeks to employ wisdom. He tries to understand wisdom and folly. He pursues a life of pleasure to see if that will bring meaning. He accumulates great wealth. In chapter 2 verse 3, he says, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. He's not just on some self-centered hedonistic pursuit. He's wanting to find out what is good to do. And yet he comes to a realization in chapter 2 verses 13 to 14. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then at the end of verse 16, like the fool, the wise too must die. What he realizes is that it's better to be wise than foolish, but at the end of life, both wise and foolish people are going to die. And this leads the teacher to two further conclusions. Read with me the end of chapter 2, starting at verse 17. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness, but to the sinner he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. As hard as the teacher works in this life, and as much as he might be a wise person, he cannot stop the inevitable fact of death. And this leads him to his final conclusion, which we see particularly in chapter 3, verses 9 to 22, but also in chapter 2. The end of life affects the way we live now. It is a truism that death comes to us all. Have you ever visited a cemetery? The people whose remains are buried there did not all die because they were not wise enough or did not work hard enough in this life. They are there because death is an inevitable part of human life. 
Death does not spare those who live better lives than others. All people die. Yet this is not the most distressing thing for the teacher. The thing that seems to upset him most is the fate of all that he's worked for when he dies. In fact, he's so distressed that he says in verse 18 that I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. When we read chapter 3, we even find the teacher comparing his fate to that of the animals. In chapter 3 verse 19, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. Animals, wise humans, foolish humans alike all die. We also find that even work itself can be distressing. In chapter 2 verse 22, the teacher speaks of toil and anxious striving. Then in verse 23, he says, all their days their work is grief and pain. So that he says, this too is meaningless. And this leads him on to his second conclusion in verses 24 to 25. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Similarly, chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. And finally, in chapter 3, verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? You see, as much as the teacher is distressed by the observations he's made of the world and the realization of the reality of his own death, he reaches a positive conclusion. He discovers that there is the possibility for joy and hope. Life can be enjoyed. But what the teacher has learned is that that joy does not, not come from himself. It is not achieved by his own hard work and pursuit of gain, profit or pleasure. Because when those things are an end in and of themselves, the teacher observes that they only lead to the pain of realizing that he will die and that those things will be of absolutely no value to him anymore. What's worse, they may be inherited by someone else who hasn't worked for them and who may well treat them foolishly. The end of life, and with it the loss of any profit or gain which he's achieved, affects the way the teacher views life now. Joy comes from realizing that food, drink, and even work itself are all gifts from God to be enjoyed as such. Joy comes from the intrinsic value of those things as God-given gifts rather than in the pursuit of them as ends in themselves or by using work as a means for profit. And you see, there's another conclusion that the teacher has reached, which we haven't yet touched on, but which gives us some added perspective here. In chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, he says, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened, what is lacking cannot be counted. There is this sense in which man's best efforts are a futile striving. They are a chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried chasing the wind? Could you catch it? The teacher realizes that our efforts in this life apart from God are as effective as chasing after the wind. We might try to control our lives and the path ahead of us, yet ultimately we can't. Ultimately death is that great leveler which is outside of our control. 
but life can still be enjoyed. As we read earlier in chapter 2 verses 24 to 25 and then in chapter 3 verses 12 to 13, there is intrinsic joy in the food and drink we consume and in the work we do when we view them not as means to profit or ends in themselves, but as gifts from God. As 2.25 reminds us, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment. So here is the conclusion the teacher ultimately comes to. Having started with this observation that life is meaningless, transient, vaporous, and having undergone this quest for meaning through the pursuit of wisdom, accumulation, and pleasure, the teacher realizes that joy and contentment only come through God, recognizing him as the giver of good things. Without this perspective, all the work we do and things we strive, for which we strive are simply treasures which we must leave behind when we die. And work is just a means with which to buy more treasures which we must leave behind when we die. The teacher's great observation is this. Joy is found in God and in enjoying his gifts rather than in pursuing or seeking to accumulate those gifts for our own personal gain. This is what he learned as he considered the end of his life. Is it possible for us to live such a life of joy? Where do you currently derive joy? Does it come from pursuing good grades for the sake of having a good GPA and so that when you graduate you can earn a six-figure salary straight up? Or do you enjoy study as a God-given opportunity to learn so that you can be best equipped to serve him in your chosen profession? Do you work two part-time jobs so that you can save plenty of money or spend it or do you work thanking God for the way he provides for you to pay your bills through your wage? The teacher realized that the end affects the now. The inevitable end of this life affects the now. Death will put an end to possessions, so enjoy them for what they are rather than being caught up in the pursuit of them. But what if there's something beyond this life? What if this life isn't the end? As we learn from the teacher, death puts an end to our enjoyment of the things we possess and the acclaim or prestige we've achieved in this life. But the teacher hints towards something more. Chapter 3 verse 14 says this, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Everything God does will endure forever. In contrast to the work we do, and the things we achieve here which will end, everything God does will endure forever. There is time beyond what we experience of it in this life. The teacher tells us more in verse 17 of chapter 3. God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. There will be time beyond what we experience in this life. There is a forever, but there will also be a time of judgment. God will judge what we have done in this life. The good news is that if we follow Jesus, he has already faced God's judgment on our behalf. The good news is that if we trust Jesus has done this for us, we are assured of a glorious future beyond this life. Hear these words from 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 to 57. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we have a bigger, better future to look forward to beyond the grave. Death is not the end. Death is swallowed up by Jesus' victory over it when he died and rose again from the dead. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven our sins and his resurrection gives us the assurance of spending eternity with him in heaven in far better, unsurpassable joy beyond anything we can possibly experience in this life. As followers of Jesus, we can go even beyond what the teacher concluded. We can thank God for each good gift in this life, not so much because they will end at death, but because things will only get better. As I work on this talk, a dear relative of mine is very near to death, her life looking to be so sadly cut short by a brain tumour. When we visited her recently, we knew it would probably be the last time we ever saw her in this life. But oh, how we can rejoice that one day we will stand with her in heaven, praising God and rejoicing in the bliss of life with him there. We can know this because we know that she loves Jesus and will be going to be with him when her life ends. Enjoy this life, but don't seek after it. Rejoice in the good gifts in this life, but with an eye on the better life that is to come in heaven for those who trust Jesus for their salvation. The better life for those who know that when we face God's judgment, he will look at us and see that Jesus has already taken any punishment that would have been due to us on our behalf. Jesus had something to say about this life to come in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19 down to verse 21. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When Jesus tells us, to lay up treasures in heaven he's telling us this keep our eyes fixed on what is to come rather than storing up treasures here on earth don't store up treasures here on earth partly because they will end but also because jesus has given us something better to look forward to yes the end shapes the now but what happens beyond this life shapes the now too you see if we believe that this life is all there is then it only makes sense to work as hard as we can to get the best GPO so that we can get the best job possible. If there is life beyond this life, we can be satisfied with a lower GPA if it means devoting more time to our church and Christian group so that others can know the hope we have in Jesus. If this life is all there is, it only makes sense to be in a job that we really love and to find a more satisfying, more meaningful, more enjoyable job if we don't like the one we're in. It's not necessarily wrong to change jobs, but if there is life beyond this life, we might contemplate sticking it out in a job we don't love, but where we've built up good relationships with people, where they know we follow Jesus, and where they can see the difference he makes in our lives by our faithful hard work, and by the opportunities we might have to actually talk to them about him. If this life is all there is, we will want to travel and see the world and experience all that it has to offer. If there is life beyond this life, we might consider giving the money we would have spent on travel to support a missionary who's going to work in another country or to support a ministry here 
in Australia so that people can learn about Jesus and have the opportunity to hear of the salvation he offers so that they too can experience life beyond this life. The end shapes the now. How much more should what lies beyond the end of this life affect the way we live it now? So hold lightly to the things we experience in this life. They will pass like a vapor, like a mist. So hold them loosely because the best is yet to come. At the start of this talk, we asked the question, what makes life good? As the teacher showed us, good and joy in life are found in enjoying the good things God gives us as gifts from him, not seeking these gifts of personal gain as ends in themselves. Why? Because this life will end and so too will those possessions, those gifts. The end will come. So enjoy good things as gifts from God rather than pursuing them as ends in themselves for personal gain or profit. But if the end of this life helps us to enjoy the good things of this life, then the even better future that is awaiting followers of Jesus beyond this life means we don't have to experience all our joy in the here and now. We don't have to experience as much enjoyment as we possibly can in this life. Rather, we can enjoy life but holding the good, enjoyable things lightly, knowing that the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for all the good things you give us in this life. Help us to enjoy them as gifts from you. Thank you that through Jesus we can experience eternal life after death, life with you forever in heaven. Lord, may this reality sink deep into our hearts and may the truth of it change the way we live now. Help us to live this life with our eyes fixed on you as the giver of all good and with our eyes fixed on heaven and salvation through your Son as the ultimate gifts you have given. Looking forward to the glorious future that awaits when we will experience unsurpassable joy in your presence if we trust in him. Amen.